0: What we figured out as a strategy there that's been really fun, actually, is we've started to brand ourselves the way we act, the way the company looks, the way the company thinks, the way we communicate around this idea of make steel sexy. And so we've made like this really like emotional ploy and tie to the industry that has really created a lot of stir and excitement, where it's showing everybody that we're doing things differently and people take notice
1: let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I had the genuine pleasure of speaking with Dallas Hoganson. Dallas is the CEO of Felix, making steel sexy since 2019, which was established by a team of steel and technology experts to create the world's largest operating platform and marketplace to help solve commerce for the steel industry. Having raised over $24 million since inception, under Dallas's leadership, Felix has grown exponentially over the last few years in their efforts to digitize the $2 trillion traditional paper-based steel industry as they've built out their platform to manage the entire steel sourcing process, from procurement to logistics to financing, facilitating many hundreds of millions of dollars in transactions. Dallas joined Felix after a decade building and scaling companies, His previous work includes co-founding Livelli and Signal HQ, which were acquired in 2016 and 2020 respectively, plus two top sales jobs at Lyft, where he led Lyft Business to become a billion dollar run rate business unit. Dallas has incredible perspective on marketplaces, on the challenges of company building, and on the importance of culture. This was truly one of my favorite conversations to date, and I hope you all enjoy my conversation with Dallas Hoganson as well. Dallas, you have uh, quite an extensive entrepreneurial background. When you reflect on on your career, you know, how is it that you think about your your path to to startups and, and the multiple companies you've helped to to start and, and to grow? Where did that interest in in building things stem from?
0: Yeah, you know, I think if you look back and it's probably like a lot of other stories, is that so a lot of story about failure, discovery. And chance, and so I look back, you know, in my career after being in Silicon Valley for a decade, in New York, and and Denver, and now ultimately Cleveland. um, It really started probably when I was young. Grew up on a ranch out in Oregon, so you know, very far from home. At this point, it was an athlete through college, and so a lot of that life was about you know, project based, completing the task, failure, solving for adversity. A lot of the time, and um, you know, ultimately, I always thought I wanted to work in the financial world, and my goal was to really be a trader or work at a hedge fund, and that's really kind of where I aligned my paths too. What changed that decision for me was, yeah, after I got hurt playing football, I had to really think about what was next and prioritize my life around you know thinking about the future. I stumbled across the opportunity to build a fraternity in college, and I built it from the ground up, and it was just really the first kind of foray for me to dive into something that I really got to build from like the nuts and bolts of the house to the first 70 people that were in that class. And what was fun for me, to be honest with you, was that I had no idea how fraternities worked. <laughs> I, I understood how teams worked and you know how to how to build to a mission. And so I got to be really, really free in the way of thinking about building that community and that, that group of people together. And I wasn't withholden by any of like the previous traditions that had really happened there. And to, for me, that was something that really opened my eyes around entrepreneurship and building businesses and building equity and value in something that has staying power. And so I really got interested there, honestly. But however, at that time, I'd still signed my offer to go work in the financial world. And out of college, I left to go do that. I was there for about two years, and um, I was studying startups all day. I was studying early stage company, I was studying you know public companies, and looking for ideas really for for the portfolio that were interesting. And I had a, a bunch of good friends that were in Silicon Valley, and I found myself constantly calling them, asking them questions, learning more, and just getting more excited. And I ultimately made the decision to leave that job, and really get rid of all my belongings, and take a hockey bag down to San Francisco and. Staying with a couple buddies that I grew up playing poker with and went to high school with, and now who are all CEOs and SVPs of different technology companies, and I slept on—I uh, I, slept—I slept, I shared a bed with uh, one of my best buddies for like six months, and um, he actually was the officiant at my wedding. So it's kind of crazy how that chance and happenstance kind of brings that future forward, and, and so it, ultimately, what I had had done. Is, you know, I realized that, you know, I wasn't smart enough to be on the product or engineering side. I didn't have those technical skills. And so I was probably going to land in the BD side or I was going to land on the sales side. And I had a trip down there for work where I, and I ultimately held, I think, 13 interviews over two days with companies. And I had a pretty strict criteria at that point. I was looking for, an opportunity where I had to make you know eighty to a hundred dials a day because I knew that if I could create these quick feedback loops, I could learn much quicker than doing like a traditional long tail high ACV enterprise sale. And I also wanted to find a company that had good investors, but also had good founders that had previous success, so I could learn from them. And at that time, I believe Rocket Lawyer was Series A or Series B. I can't remember now. It's, it's been about ten years, but um, you know we. I showed up day one and picked up the phone and started dialing. What I had learned from that process and really kind of set off my career was I would get in five thirty, six in the morning every day. I'd take the 509 bus from the marina to downtown San Francisco. I would turn on the lights and I would take all the inbound calls from the East Coast because nobody was in the office. And so I would hit quota. I mean, it was like $300 at a time at this point. And so, I mean, you really like dialing, dialing for dollars. And it was about speed. It was about... How quickly could you match and mirror this person? And Rocket Rocketware is just like LegalZoom, essentially legal services, paperwork, and things like that. So there's pretty big emotional pain with the buyer, and it's usually too late, so they're looking for something that's already happened. And so we had to learn very quickly how to build empathy with those prospects and essentially close them and get credit cards on the phone. And you know, that was really eye-opening to me. Not Not the sale itself, it was, I think, pretty simple, but how important it was for building rapport with the human being, matching who they were, understanding um, where they were coming from, and actually finding a solution that fit their need that was going to help them. I'm really glad that I took that approach because I just had thousands of at bats, and so you know what you asked me is how you know, how that it ultimately led to like the future of my career was yeah. because I had hit because I'd hit quota every day, but before noon, I would get on LinkedIn and I would message founders, CEOs, business leaders and things like that on LinkedIn every single day and what I got really good at was understanding like the business model of their company so I would ask questions that were like smart and so for example like we were a heavy inbound team and what I would be asking is like hey here's our model I see that you guys have a transactional sale as well here's things I'm thinking about I'd love to sit down with you at lunch Talk about like what you found top of funnel that's interesting that might help accelerate what we're doing here. And so I was being very pointed with my questions and doing my homework. And so I did that for several months, actually, almost every single day. And what, what ended up happening is I got, through a recruiter, uh, actually introduced to the YC network. Mm. And ended up taking my first VP job for iCracked, which ultimately became the world's largest on-demand iPhone repair buyback and insurance company, where we we had built the Uber for iPhone repair. And so in seven months, really using that strategy, and being in sales was not my ultimate goal. It was just the place that would take me, really, was I had the chance now to go build a company from scratch. I mean, when I showed up day one, they were getting an inbound lead printed off on a piece of paper, and we had had raised the seed round coming out of YC, and then we had just we had just previous to our ten million Series A with Andreessen at that time. That was really eye opening to me, and and I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I really learned was that no one nobody knows what they're doing, and we're <laughs> sure. all and we're all and we're all making it up. You just get better at making it up as you progress throughout your career, and you you start to recognize patterns and things like that, but. Like I mentioned, even when I was building the fraternity in college, is that my mind was so free to think about ideas and do it differently. And I wasn't stuck in an old process or a way that I'd been taught. I really got to build from scratch on my own. And they gave me the flexibility and freedom to do that. And it was you know, a really good run for us. I mean, it was poised to be one of the next billion-dollar companies. We ultimately had a, a good exit a few years later. But that gave me the confidence and the access to like, Silicon Valley I think that kind of propelled my career forward, and I mean, it was it was just an insane story. I mean, you see the you see Silicon Valley on HBO, like that's that's the startup story. Like I was sleeping on a sailboat, <laughs> I was skateboarding to work every morning. I slept under my desk two days a week. Um, you know, we had Nerf guns. It was beer kegs. we were up till one thirty in the morning packing like iPhone kit repair kits and sending them all over the world. And and at that time too, we actually had a warehouse where. You know, we had a million dollars of iPhone parts or $2 million at any given time. And what was really fun about that experience, even though it was really hard, if I look back, like I would never do it again, is like how galvanizing it was for the organization. Everybody was working hard. Everybody was staying late. Everybody was doing the work to be had. And it's just so different than the corporate life. And I think that energy kind of drew me down this path that, you know, early stage is hard as it is. Um, like the relationships and challenges and adversity, adversity you face, um, with your peers is build these lifelong commitments. And all those guys today are still, you know, some of my closest friends. And even one of them was the best man in my wedding, one of the founders. So I felt very lucky. To have a chance there, where they took a chance on me, which they shouldn't have, obviously, right? Like seven <laughs> months of inside sales, inside sales, transactional sales experience, come in to be their first VP of growth and revenue, and um, I think they had the trust that like just my business sense, my financial acumen was smart enough to make like not huge mistakes. But there, there is a kind of there is a funny story from that where one day, um, so what we were doing is we were running back, so we were building a network of technicians. So it was a three-sided marketplace. And one day I we run back background checks on everybody. And so and really to enhance like the process and the funnel, i had kicked off the background process check on the website. And then we're getting thousands of inquiries a month at this point. And so about seven days later, I hear our CEO AJ just being like, tell us what the you know from from the other side of the <laughs> office. And I'm like, I have no idea what's going on right now. Like, what could be happening? And I, he like, I, I, go into his office, and he's like yelling at me. He's like, hold up this piece of paper, and he's like, "What is this charge for? Thirty six thousand dollars?" And I'm like, uh-huh. I was like, I was like, I was like, first off, I don't know. Like, what does it say? And essentially, what the engineer had done. And this was a great lesson too, just on like, you know, moving fast and breaking things, but also sometimes like double checking your work. Is when the, when the individual had signed up on our website, we actually kicked off the background check process, and that was like thirty to fifty dollars a background check. Mm. And this was when Checker had just started out, and like we were one of their first customers, and Uber was one of their first customers. And now they're like a multi-billion-dollar company. You know, I, which which was so funny about this. He's like, "You better do something about it." So I called the founder, um, Daniel, and I was like, "Hey, listen, man, we made a mistake. Like, what can we do here?" And he removed the entire bill. Um, and he was like, "Listen, I know how like much business you guys are doing. It's no problem. We'll, we'll we'll eat it and we'll build for the future." And that was just like a, a really cool like lesson to understand. Like, there's so many startups out there, especially in Silicon Valley at the time. It was a hotbed for it. Like, but everybody was in it together, right? And like the YC network and um, how important like you leverage that community to go mm-hmm. build great businesses and how it taught you to do so. And so that for me was really like the launching pad to thinking about, okay, this is my this is my path. This is the way that I wanna I wanna spend my time and, and build my life around and you know, lucky enough to go from there to do some, some fun things. I got to and I invested in a marketplace company called Lively, which was building really interesting technology for staffing in the restaurant space. And this was a really hard problem at the time. And so we had we had built that team, about five of us, really good friend of mine who's an advisor now for the company and has a marketplace company as well. And was the old COO of Bolt, which is, if you've read in the headlines, probably one of the most fascinating growth stories in history. We ended up actually selling the technology off for that business pretty quick. And what happened from there is I actually synced back up with um, my old boss from Rocket Lawyer. And him and I came in to Lyft at the time when there was a couple hundred employees and we started Lyft business. ultimately grew that to the most profitable uh, business line within the company and, and took that to a billion dollar. Uh, revenue line within the company, and that that to me has a lot of parallels to like what we're doing today. Where you know, for the first six months, we didn't have a we didn't have a product. We were mm-hmm. the black sheep of the company. Nobody really knew what these salespeople were doing within Lyft at the time. Everybody thought about it as a consumer platform, but we were building and selling into HR to really pro- improve employee travel. And so we had built really the first ever platform to incorporate ride share with our consumer network. And so not only could you save money, you could actually geofence locations and you could have predicted dollar amounts on each ride, you had a lot better safety mechanisms. And so it really changed the game around how people think about like the expense stack for employees, how they think about safety for travel, and how they think about managing costs and consideration of like what their employees are doing when they're on the road. So I just felt really fortunate to have that opportunity, honestly, and um I think that really propelled me to where, you know, we are today with VLux. With
1: mm. I guess summarizing what what I would take away as really kind of having built out a, a core competency in in marketplaces. I would imagine, you know, with the experiences you've had starting companies at that point helping to scale marketplaces on, on Lyft's front, you know, the 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 world would be your oyster in terms of, you know, what you chose to do next. And so I'd love to hear about, you know, your thought process of why choose to focus on on this industry, which you have in, in particular, and, you know, just a little bit about the kind of founding, if you will, for Felix.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, after the lift stand, I was pretty, I was pretty burnt out and I wanted to build a lifestyle business actually. And so um, a couple of buddies and I, we actually bootstrapped a company called Signal HQ, which was really the one of the first companies thinking about intent data for sales individuals. And so we had leveraged some really interesting data sets from a partner of ours, Bombora, which is one of the leaders in intent data. And we had built a technology platform for account executives and SGRs. And we had this incredible incredible tool, we called it God Mode for the internet, where we could really see what every individual business was searching for. We boot, we ended up bootstrapping the business and we had a Fortune 500 company, and twenty other customers like right out the gate. So we're like, oh, there's something definitely here. And the intent was never to raise capital for the business, but I think ultimately what ended up happening is that I think just the the founder relationship wasn't great, and we decided to kind of wind down and sell the business to Bombora, and so that brought me to okay, I do want to do a venture backed business. I want to do something that has is big. And is worth 20 years of my time. And so like my framework out the gate was pretty defined coming into early 2020. And so I'd I'd written down on a piece of paper, you know, where is venture capital poor and where is private equity rich? And then my thesis really was around where are really long tail fragmented markets that have poor buying experiences or low MPS scores for the for the buyer. And where can we verticalize technology in that space? And it's got to be a multi-billion or hundreds of billion-dollar market. And so, you know, I started out in cold calling, really all these unsexy spaces, just trying to learn and understand what these businesses were doing, where opportunity was. And funny enough, like I, I had a, I have a huge poker background, and a lot of my friends are still professionals today. But I had ended up speaking to a guy I played poker with, who ran a steel service center in the northwest, and and my aunt had worked in the, the industry for for 40 years and i called them and i just said like, how does this, how does this work mm-hmm. like walk me through how a dollar flows through this business how do you manage your customers how do you manage supply what does the industry look like and and to be honest it was kind of like oh shit like it's it's this is how it works and it was eye opening to me that this was still taking place now I, I probably shouldn't have been surprised but i was like okay there's something here and i think this is where you know, opportunity meets like preparation. Really, was I actually had gotten I received a phone call and an email from an executive recruiter that I spent a lot of time working with at Lyft, and he, he, he would call me a bunch around marketplace companies and want me to talk to founders and things like that. And so, like you said earlier, you know, I've always been kind of known as a marketplace or community guy because I built a couple community based companies as well. I'll never forget this. He's like, "Listen, <laughs> um, hear 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 me out. You know, don't hang up the phone." but I want you to talk to the CEO of a steel company. And um, honestly, I was like, okay. I was like, why? And then I, I originally thought he was going to be like a 70-year-old guy that had like a young kid that was like, I got a technology idea. Like that's, that's, that's what I thought I was going to walk into. And to be honest, like I didn't really do any prep. Like I just was like, I'll take the call. I'll see what they're doing. I'll see, you know, if I can make introductions or be helpful. But I didn't really think too much of it. Like I, um hindsight, it just, it's funny how the timing aligned and worked out with what I was searching and building around. That's when I got introduced to Todd Lebo and Chris Day. So Todd Lebo is the CEO of Majestic Steel, which is one of the predominant flat roll carbon service centers in the United States. And uh, I think Todd is one of the leaders in entrepreneurship in, in, this, in the country and in the city of Cleveland himself. And what I really fell in love with Todd was that his ambition and vision was so clear. Like he was so passionate about what could become of this industry because he's been in it for the last twelve years as a CEO of Majestic and has really transformed that business to be an innovator in the space. And you know what I found my skill set to be really excellent at is not exactly like the zero to one or the zero to a half, but like the half to a hundred. Mm. And I was like, oh, you understand the supply side of this industry. You have relationships. You're the person that's on Bloomberg. You're the person that's on CNBC. You're the person in Washington thinking about policy. So like your fundamental understanding and knowledge of the space is something that could take me 10 to 15 years to get any credibility in, but we have that day one. And in industries like this that are so opaque, that are so old, like old school boys clubs, that's important. That is an important part of the scorecard and the rubrics that you have to check that box to get in. If not, they don't let you in. And what ended up happening was they had started the company in 2019, had about 80 or so customers, had done about 10 million in GMV. But it was, you know, it was two seal guys building a really complex and solving a really complex technology and data problem. And so, you know, my thesis and what I came back to them with is like, hey, I, I believe in your vision. It aligns with what I want to go do. But how we execute on it is a little bit different really I thought in order to kind of own this world and bring this offline industry online and I think it's the largest offline industry that might still exist today I mean it's, it's, it's up there yeah is that we have to build the largest data graph in the world and and normalize the taxonomy so we have to be the system of record of language so we can build the matching algorithms and we can build the technology to facilitate the movement of, of goods and I'll tell you like very plainly like we're not ever going to be a brokerage house. Our goal is to have a piece of every single piece of metal that's ever moved in the the world. So whether that's insurance, whether that's finance, whether that's shipping, whether that's warehousing, whether that's our own asset-based carriers, like we want to move every piece of material in the world, probably outside of China, just given what that market's like. And that's still a $2 trillion market that exists today. And we're the first technology platform thinking about that in, in the space.
1: So at that point, you found a, something at the the uh, intersection of this Venn diagram of you know your thesis, right? Uh, a highly fragmented industry with low NPS, with you know someone who has that industry expertise already working on kind of a vertically integrated, you know, Keith Raboy esque solution to to this kind of of problem. The thing that I want to maybe start with here is. I love this idea of entering what is obviously such an enormous market, right? Where <laughs> obviously steel is, is incredibly significant. And in the face of a market that big, uh, I'm wondering how you came to this idea of a vocabulary, right? Creating that, that taxonomy, a, a language um, as the first product. Like, how, how do you go about figuring out where to focus? Because obviously there's you know, endless problems you could try and, and potentially solve in a space that big.
0: Yeah, and trust me, we've made mistakes. Uh, <laughs> I call our business a compound business, just like a compound lift, right? We have to do several things at once to make everything work, where it's not, like an, it's not like a spot solution or an isolation. And so we knew like, the core root of everything actually stems on normalizing the taxonomy. And so why that's important and why this problem has never been solved is that on both sides of the market, on the supply, all the way down to the end manufacturer, is everything exists in what you call like a spec sheet. Inventory is like paper-based. Inventory is in a spreadsheet, and that's because if you go city to city, state to state, country to country, region to region, the way that materials described and IE change throughout the supply chain could be named differently. Now, there are standards, and um, there are global standards, but they're not really withholding to. And so what we figured out is that we have to build, really, the repository of information that people attach to in order to build clear matching downstream. And so it took us about seven months thinking through the problem, and we had had built the first-ever steel configurator is what we call it. A configurator is a simple mechanism of deconstructing something So, like it has pieces. So, like if you're putting a t shirt online, like it's a medium, like you configure it to be a medium. So, you sell the medium online. It's the same thing we do with flat rolled carbon um, or whatever type of steel that we ingest onto the platform. And because of that, we now know and track and build every single supplier is in the country, their capabilities. And now we're starting to digitize their inventory. And so, we can give them digital storefronts and help them get broader digital distribution. Because, like I said, you know, it's important for us at this point, we want to be a part of every transaction. And the only way to do that is kind of build the tool set and the on and off ramps to the distribution highway. What we ended up learning, and I'll talk about like a lot of the mistakes here, is you think about a marketplace, it's a cold start problem, always like you need two sides to make a market work. And um, it's typically the hardest part to figure out. Now. We started in 2019 and 2020 really thinking about and isolating around the supply of the steel industry. Now, some of the facts about the steel industry that are still remain true today, and but COVID did help accelerate this, is most of the industry is older white men. The last technology they had brought in, it may be 15, 20 years ago, very legacy-generated ERP systems. And um, they didn't have a clear way to use data or a clear initiative to like buy technology. It was a very foreign concept to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on technology. And also too, we went from the, we went into the, the, the frothiest steel market in history over the last two years where most of the steel guys didn't have an incentive to change. And so I think we spent a lot of time thinking about like, how do we change the mindset and outcome of that industry but what we realize, actually, is the demand side of the large manufacturers. Pricing is so opaque. Inventory levels are opaque. The way it's finding and sourcing new suppliers is almost impossible. It takes months to years, some time. Establishing credit, um, getting visibility into your shipments, right? automatically matching with the right supplier. All of that stuff didn't exist. And so the real pain actually existed on the buy side, which we talked about earlier, like the Keith or boys esque business model, which is long-tail low MPS and we started once we figured that out like everything just clicked and you know Tesla was our first enterprise customer and we work with some of the largest Fortune 500s and now we're talking to the innovation officers of Toyota and and so like what we're finding that is that the pain on the manufacturer procurement side is so great that you know they're gonna spend hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to use our procurement platform to get access to our supply side to also get access to distribution and RFQs in the spot market. So um, we really struggled with this for a year and a half trying to figure out like what's that what's that growth loop or hook or hack that we can do that accelerates the nodes of this marketplace so we get to you know economies of scale much quicker. Yeah, I think we feel really fortunate that like we're the first ever people building verticalized, essentially, procurement software for the industry. And that creates stickiness. And it also creates a large competitive mode because like you don't rip out ERP systems. You don't rip out core supply chain software very quickly. And it removes us from ever being a brokerage, too. So like we're always fighting for every transaction they do and that we're not stuck just doing their next one.
1: How much did you find that your you know, tabula rasa, clean slate, beginner's mind carried with you into this new space. You know, how, how encumbered is the industry by the traditional, proven, perhaps anachronistic ways of, of the way that they have done things? And have you kind of thought about that this time around?
0: Yeah, it's actually, it's, it's a question that makes me laugh because um, everything you said is so true. Like, they, they're really stuck in their ways, <laughs> And so what we what I what I figured out was okay. Well, if they're if, like we we have a just saying internally, we're going to meet the customer where they are today. So they may be six months away, they may be ten years away, but we're going to meet them where they are. And what we figured out as a strategy there that's been really fun, actually, is we've started to brand ourselves, the way we act, the way the company looks, the way the company thinks, the way we communicate around this idea of make steel sexy. And so. We've made like this really like emotional ploy and tie to the industry that has really created a lot of stir and excitement where it's showing everybody that we're doing things differently and people take notice, right? Because what we what we have found out is well, most of these guys are gonna retire in four or five years and they're like, you know what, I'm good. Like I don't need anything else, like we're we're fine. And but they all but they they respect their tradition and everybody is looking for new ways to actually like carry on with the steel industry is. Like it's gonna be hurting from a talent perspective. The diversity, the age gap here is a, a real problem. And so what we have found is that we have become like a trusted advisor and partner. And really like the energy, like the youth movement of the industry, and that has brought that's opened like every door for us, actually. And that's not even starting with the product. Like we always wanted to be a product led growth company, but we realized that this we need to meet them where they are. We need to, you know, sometimes help reset their passwords. We need to sometimes help them do the transaction and get on the, on the computer with them. Sometimes we have to buy them a computer. Like that's, that's a real thing. And so we took that approach. And, and here was the outcome, which has really been a great outcome for us Is people don't talk about Felix. They talk about the people's names at Felix. How's Grant? How's Lydia? How's Carolyn? How's Dalton? Right? And so our customers talk about the people internally because you know, we're doing everything we can to show, listen, we're not here for a transactional moment. We're here to build the future of what this industry we think can be. And so we've treated our relationships like that. And that once we figured out that, hey, listen, we can let go of the past, we can let go of the industry norms, and we can bring an energy to here that's different, that has changed everything for us as a company.
1: Yeah, the the making steel sexy, which you know, I'd, I'd love to chat a little bit more about it as well. But I, I think you know the whole idea that you know meeting your your customer where they are and helping them along that journey. I mean, just you know, a few weeks ago, I, I I met a fellow at the airport who was wearing one of your shirts. You know, make make steel sexy, and I I wasn't actually the first one to come talk to him about it. It just like it invites you know like oh you know what what is that all about. And uh, you know, I happen to connect with him, and you know, he's a he's a rave you know supporter of <laughs> of the work you're doing. And I I cannot imagine having worked myself in you know with secretaries of state in uh, the voting industry and large health systems on the healthcare side, similar industries that are you know highly verticalized. You don't often see customers you know celebrating vendors in that way. I think in those markets where they face. Those those kinds of pull to the way that they have done things historically. So I, I think it's a really fascinating approach.
0: Yeah, I appreciate. it. I mean, it's funny you say that. That I've probably received like six or seven texts from people <laughs> saying, "Hey, listen, I see your I see your make steal sexy T shirts out there," <laughs> which uh, you know, obviously, like we didn't know like you know what what it was going to do or how it's going to take off. But I mean, we give we give hundreds of those shirts away. Like every. Our competitors want them, our customers want them. And like, we get requests all the time. We actually built a hackathon, a makestealsexy.com store where people can buy them too. And like, we get orders. Um, And like, the joke in the beginning is like, we were a kind of like a pro consumer based model. Like, in the beginning, we were giving away and doing the transactions for free like some of our first revenue was from selling t-shirts. And so like, are we a t-shirt company now at this point? (laughs) But I mean, to that point is like, you know, we have a very curated approach to this and it's important to us. And we put a lot of time thinking about it at our conferences. Like we have a huge conference coming up. I mean, we're, we're building... We're not doing a booth. Like we're doing a lounge. We're having a cigar roller that has like branded, make steel, sexy cigars. We're having like matchbooks. We have playing cards with steel facts. Right. We're not giving out pens. We don't have like a, a simple backlit booth. Like we we try to create and invest in experiences for our customers and our vendors and the people that they work with because we 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 believe inherently here at Felix that if you can build like an emotional tie and bond with that individual. That goes much farther than business, and like that's what we want to build the foundation of our customer relationships off of. And, and we did the same thing at Lyft. To be honest with you, we had a very simple strategy the first year, where we want to get to text and hugs with travel managers. Hmm. That was our strategy. Uber, Uber was you know making thousands of phone calls a day, and they were kind of the bad guys in the space. But because we cared, we showed up, we knew them, we knew what they cared about, and as people, I mean, we took away eleven percent market share in our first year. Um, uh, building that business with that simple strategy. And I think that's something that's missed a lot of time today.
1: How has the the business kind of changed? You know you mentioned some of the the learnings along the way so far. I guess a, a few things on, on that that thread. you know when you look back, what would you describe as kind of the first big break that you got in your favor or something that happened that created like a a step change function in the business? You know, is that figuring out? You know that you need to st- perhaps start on the the demand side instead of the supply side. How has it evolved from there?
0: You know, it's interesting. So when it took over the business in 2020, I like think it was, yeah, about 10 million in GMV on the platform, and now we're about 600 million two years later, and that makes us one of the largest marketplaces in North America and and in the world. And yet, like we had to feel like we just weren't. We weren't succeeding up to our full potential. And we're like, how do we unlock this market? What do we have to do? Like banging our heads against the wall. And the real break actually came with working from Schneider Electric, one of the Fortune 500 companies, one of the largest companies in the world. And what we started to figure out was that there is a very complex procurement process that happens to establish contracts with some of the largest suppliers in space. And that, I mean, they're spending millions of dollars with um, consultants to try to solve this. And, and we figured out that most of the people in the procurement side were pretty new to managing the steel supply chain and really didn't have any historical data or context, didn't know the market, didn't know how to buy against the market, how to hedge against it, how to forecast against it. And a lot of times they're building or buying thousands of skus for all of their products. And so the stakes were incredibly high. And so we, we spent a lot of time with Schneider helping them analyze, build models, look at cost savings, source new suppliers, and build technology and product around it. And so the real big break and hook for us was realizing that, hey, the, the actual unlock for the marketplace starts on supply. That's our, one of our main key on-ramps to distribution. And for example, like with Tesla, I mean, we pulled in a supplier that had been trying to get in there for 10 years and we walked them in the door day one. And so it automatically created this pull mechanism to the supply side. So, you know, we are really focused on the enterprise procurement side of it first. And we were focused on top-line growth of the marketplace first. And I think the big unlock and learning there was, and now listen, the the venture market uh, for the past 13 years really allowed us to do that where you could raise a lot of capital and you're expected to grow top line fast because you'll figure out revenue later. Like that was the model. I mean, that's why valuations were so crazy that everybody was raising eight to 12 months at part. And we, and we were in the same boat and we were the fat, I mean, we grew 4,500% year over year from 21, from 20 to 21 and 22. And so like we were on those like, metrics, but like, what we really cared about was like, how do we establish quality revenue, and how do we build these moats so we have long-term relationships, long-term contracts, create pull mechanisms in the marketplace where they're doing that organically, and we don't have a bunch of acquisition cost around it. And so that was that moment where we we're like, oh wow, like we stumbled on something here that's pretty special that, that really no one else is looking at. And so, like we've really committed the entire company, we've shifted 90 percent of the company resources to focus on that from a product perspective, and we're really spending all of our time there right now. So we act as a marketplace mm-hmm. second model now, where in the beginning we acted as a marketplace first model.
1: You know, with that shift, what what is the maybe just give us a little background uh, history of you know what the company looks like today? How has it evolved? And then I'd love to get your perspective on, you know, with that first unlock. How much do you think is left to to be unlocked and on on what timeline it it feels like you know it's in the early days here, but what are those things that are are going to drive the business going forward?
0: so I talk about this a lot internally, and you know I really think we're in the first batter or the first inning as far as the timeline of the company. You know I think we still have a six or seven year track to iPO and that's ultimately the goal of the company. But if you look at the company today, we raised about twenty four million in the last I'm gonna call it sixteen months um, we raised our seed in May of twenty one from eight BC Expa light bank and some other angels in the space so we had we actually brought in some uh, we brought in some um, strategic capital too from the scrap market from the steel market and then um, like I said we had tremendous growth over that eight month period and then we raised another um, nineteen million at the start of this year. That was all based on the marketplace first model. So the team today was about thirty six people and we our original headcount model was to about fifty and we actually slowed that down just given kind of what happened in the venture market and what happened on a macro perspective today where we're being really conservative with cash and have about three years of run rate currently in the bank. Because what we wanted to do is make sure we could establish a clear line to like quality revenue in this procurement side before we double down and start to accelerate again. And so, you know, I think that when we look at how much this company has changed. It's really from when I took it over, there was six or seven people. We rebuilt the culture from the ground up. We rebuilt we rebuilt the brand. We've gone through three or four iterations of like where do we think we start, where do we think we focus on. But ultimately the goal, like I talked about earlier, is like we want to touch every piece of metal. And so like the phasing of this business is really in the infancy. Like, I mean, we're a seed stage company again where this is, we think, the most important work to unlock the next level, which is actually supply side distribution. And so, the way you can think about that is like Shopify. Like, we're building the operating systems for these steel suppliers to manage all of their digital orders because 99%, like it or not, still happen offline in this industry. It's all email, it's all fax, it's all text, and there's really no historical records of what's happened. And so, all of those things need to be solved before I think you can reach massive global scale.
1: What is the competitive frontier for, for the business? Like, do you, do you consider it the old guard, the analog way of doing it? Or are there other companies who are starting to think in the way that you are thinking about the space?
0: Yeah, so we, we have one pseudo-competitor and we don't really think they're like exactly analogous today, which is Rebus. And they're, they're really a market participant and brokerage in the space, and um, and they've done very well. They've raised seventy five million at a $750 seven hundred fifty million dollar valuation from SoftBank last uh, November, I believe. And so, I think what's exciting for us is that we have two companies doing interesting things in the space for the first time ever. That's yep. thinking about technology. That's bringing a new light, a younger face, a new energy. And but other than that, you're really thinking about it, it's just old guard it's the old way of doing business. And that's sometimes even harder to rip and replace. So, it, you know, we talk about a YC a lot. I mean, it's got to be a hundred times better. It's got to be a hundred times easier for them to make that chain, especially when you don't have a large fluency in technology use in our, in our demo, it makes it even harder because these are the, this is, these are the guys that have operated, you know, off their cell phone now for 10 years and then even look at a computer they have their buddies, they make an order, they call them, they make it happen. Now, what the result of that is actually created like pretty poor business operations and business transfer. So we're seeing a lot of consolidation in the space and we're seeing a lot of sunsetting, but a lot of the historicals are not there. So everybody's kind of recoming in starting from scratch. And we see this everywhere. We also see this on the manufacturing side from the largest companies in the world, like GE and I mean, you name any company. Like their actual historical data of what they've spent on the steel supply chain is like nothing. They don't have it, and it's it's not easy for them to find or put together. So um, we're really finding that's like this is a big inflection point in the industry where we, by focusing on the manufacturing side, I think really have a, a clear strategy. Hmm.
1: So I want to maybe segue a little bit to to culture, which I think we've you know touched on a, a bit throughout this conversation so far. But I, I know it's something that that is not, you know, window dressing, uh, in your mind, it is something that is very intentional, uh, and something that you've spent a lot of time thinking about. I'd love for you just to kind of outline here, you know, how it is that, that you've thought about culture and, and what that actually means. How does it, how does it manifest in, in Felix and, and, and the company at, at large? Yeah. So I think, uh, it's something I care passionately about just
0: in general is, I think if you look at, if you compare two teams to each other that are equal, like the, the team with good cultures can always win, right? It's
1: just, it's, it's, it's usually facts. And so, okay. culture eats strategy for breakfast, something like that.
0: Well, 100%. And I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer of that too. And so, like, I think a large part of my job, and I think everybody on our leadership team, and everybody, we, we challenge everybody in the company to always be thoughtful, thinking about culture and, and like being an owner of culture is what we talk about. I think that is really important where a lot of companies just frankly, they just don't do it because I think it's like not as important, but you have to prioritize it. But to me, like culture isn't like, you know, the mission, vision, value type of things. It's actually to me is culture is really created by creating trust within your employees and you do that with vulnerability. And, and so, like, we really try to manufacture experiences that allow our employees to, you know, be vulnerable, fail in front of each other, because that creates trust and understanding and camaraderie and really helps us, like, establish, like, buy-in. And, like, some of the feedback that we've gotten within our company is, like, you know, I've never seen a company that has so much, like, clear buy-in from everybody, mm. And to me, that's something I'm really proud of because we're very transparent in everything we do from the financials to our priorities to who our investors are to what we're thinking about as leadership. And so we want to make sure that we really inform our team to have the best information to make decisions and move fast. And and we, we put a lot of effort into that. Now we fail, I think, quite frequently at doing so, but I think the intent of making that a habitual process or habit is 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 really important. But I've always had really like a ten step, more or less framework for building culture, you know, from the ground up. And it's so far it's 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 worked really well for me. And I lift we were named one of the best sales cultures, the best sales team, and stuff like that. And so, I mean it's something I take a lot of pride in, to be honest. Like, I never, I've never been the smartest guy in the room. So, like, what I want to do is foster the ability for our team to execute at the highest level and make sure the smart people have the ability to do their jobs a lot better than I could ever do that.
1: Hmm. And so, just like the the tactics of it, you know, is this is this something that is you know galvanize crystallize you know somewhere within the company how, how is it that the culture and how is it related how is it communicated and how, how do you kind of uh, facilitate the the process of of culture
0: yeah so you know i'll, I'll kind of tell you i'll walk you through kind of the 10 things that i think about and kind of how we do some of that internally but really at every stage i'm thinking about belonging so i'm always forcing functions and putting individuals in situations that um creates connection and so we do a lot of that right now it's a lot harder remotely i think that's an inherent challenge that i'm always thinking about and so like always day one like we want to put people together and experiences that may not be work but allow people to get to know each other and build like remove that kind of professional bridge that usually or facade that is put up from there like we want them to fail together quite quickly. So like we're always trying to think about like the trust and empathy part. So that's like step two in the process for us. And then we create safety. Like, hey, we encourage failure. Um, we give feedback. We we do a lot of things on video, we record them. We have people give like self-assessment and feedback, and we do a lot of just direct feedback in the company, and say, Hey, listen, like this is this is what I think you could improve. This is what I think you did well. How did you think you did? And so we are we were always doing that as a team together. So like communication for us has always been a clear and direct priority and that's really established just a professionalism and trust within every level from the SDRs to management it doesn't matter and then we're always thinking about ways to build like togetherness that's the next phase is if you create safety how do we think about togetherness as a company and so it's harder today but right now we do kind of a yearly summer camp where we bring everybody in and it's like 4 days of like fun it's like you know, we're going to Dave Matthews conference, we're going to baseball games, we're doing all of these kind of business challenge exercises together. We have I think like we can make up like three professional bands in our in our company at this point. We have so many good musicians. So we have you know in the office there's like there's guitars and there's like mics and stuff like that. So people are like singing and, you know, playing games and stuff like that. And once we have created this group of like friendly people that really like each other and like have trust in each other, we start setting standards. This is like you know, I think Bill Walsh is you know one of my favorites at this, and the score takes care of itself, which is obviously one of my favorite books. But we we really said, hey, this is the Felix way. Like this is the standard at which we operate, and this is like the standard that we you know expect you to operate at, and that really creates the accountability for the team. And so like everybody feels really accountability for like the jobs to be done that they have, and so I think that comes. After you're able to create, for lack of better words, it's like locker room feel. And that's how our company feels internally. Like you go into a locker room, everybody's buddies with each other, everybody's talking, joking, but everybody's very serious because like they have high standards for how they execute on their job and they hold themselves accountable. And so once we can get to that phase with culture, we're really about autonomy. And so... We think about planning and strategy, where we give everybody the ownership of that output, where they know exactly what they're impacting. And so, we spend a lot of time just on that piece of curating the ability to go do that. And once we, once you know, it took about a year for us to do that. Really, hire in great people, change the culture that was there before. And now, what we do is frequency. So, frequency of accountability. Mm -hmm. Where every Monday we have weekly business reviews. Every 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 single member of the team on Slack says, here's my three priorities this week. Here's the three things I did last week. Here's what I completed. Here's what I didn't complete. Here's why. And then we always are trying to simplify and like make sure we align. And so we do a lot of heavy communication like that as an organization because we want people only to be working on the hardest problem or the most impactful work. And so I think that also helps establish the culture of standards that we have is that we do good work, we have high standards, we trust each other. That is a an incredible recipe for speed and also success. And so, you know, like we're very intentional about like how that is, and we're always playing with it and, and, and finding the best way to execute on it. But the whole company knows every single Monday. Hey, this is what's important. This is how you unpack that. This is how we're doing. Mm. This is where we failed. This is how we're going to change it. Does that align to your three priorities this week going forward? If not, let's talk about it, stack rank the priorities, and making sure that you're free to go do your best work. I think because of that, everybody feels like they're making an impact in the business. And Looking back, one of the things that I've learned that's incredibly important about maintaining that standard is that if you're finding that people... Don't have enough, t- like if they have too much time in the day to fill up their time, that's when things can go really bad. And so, like, we set goals that are just stretch goals. So, like, they're going to be hard to reach and it's going to take effort to get there. Mm-hmm. Because what I had found in the past is that if you have a company which is a little bit laissez faire or it's not very clear, well, people fill up their time with things that they think are important. And a lot of the time, that, that probably is not work stuff. And that gets into their mind. They start thinking, well, oh, you know what? I'm not really doing anything here. What else could I be doing? And it creates kind of a downward spiral of like personal mentality or emotions. And so a lot of this stuff is very calculated in how we think about how can we do just enough where the goal post is not far enough, where they see the next step, they know how they contribute. And also, they feel like at the end of the day, they've done good work for what they're doing.
1: You know, one of the things I, I wanted to to ask you about with the intentionality you've had with everything else we've talked about so far, you know, namely culture, is the the importance, the, the significance of building a, a steel company here in Cleveland with such a, a rich steel history.
0: Yeah, I, you know, I think it's a little bit funny. Like, I never thought I would be in steel or Cleveland, and yet, you know, here we are. And I think it's probably the most important work I'm going to do in my life. So, you know, it's funny how things work out. I mean, we talked about this earlier, but like reparation meets opportunity sometimes unlocks, you know, some really interesting things in life. And having the courage to go forward, I think is about what being an entrepreneur is about. But, I you know, I remember, I remember sitting on the couch with my wife. We were living in Denver at the time, I think pregnant as well. And I said, hey, listen, you know, if this thing works out, there's a chance that we might be going to Ohio. And she, she looked at me, she's <laughs> like, you better, she better, she better be fucking right. That's what she said. <laughs> full, 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 full stop. Um, but you know, I think the, the, the journey here is an important one. And I think one that is um, something that I, I take a lot of pride in and I'm excited to be a part of. A lot of people don't know this, but the first ever billion dollar company was a merger between Rockefeller and JP Morgan, which is US Steel, which is based out of Cleveland first ever billion dollar company came from here and it was in steel. So like, what are the, what are the odds of that? And like the rich history of that story. And also too, like this is really, you know, where the West was built out of Cleveland. And so, well, this is a funny story, but I remember packing up and selling, we sold going house in Colorado in like six hours. Like the market was so crazy there. And so we were like, okay, I guess this is real. Like we got to go. And I remember packing up and, we drove from Colorado to Ohio and that was the first time I'd ever stepped foot in Ohio. I remember leaving at 2.30 in the morning, like closing the garage and just kind of being like, okay, like this is, this is really real now. And it was an important decision for us, but the reason why we made the decision too is like my other partners are here Hmm. and you know, we also believe that, and I believe personally that, you know, I have an opportunity this company has an opportunity. The team we have here, our investors have an opportunity to actually build an next great ecosystem of technology, talent, and companies. You know, the thing that's going to make me proud is I have companies leave here, start other companies. And they have companies that they start where poised leave there and start other companies. And that's how you build an ecosystem. And so, my personal mission is like, how do we develop this hub into something powerful within industrial tech or just in technology in general? Given that insurance and healthcare is such a heavy part of what this market's about, and um, there's not a lot—I mean, there's not a lot of funding coming to Cleveland. It's all going to Columbus. It's all going to Chicago. And you know, I think we have to be the people that lead the charge to change that. And it's something you and I talk about all the time. Like we think it's important work, and I think we believe in what the future of this town could be. It's a a really cool place. It's a great place to live. Like we love living here, and like you know, we're going to be here for the foreseeable future. And I think what an outcome that looks great for us is that if you know, if we can create the ecosystem for entrepreneurs to be successful, to give them pipelines to venture capital on the coast, to give them pipelines to access to capital in the Midwest, to help them solve hiring challenges that exist here. You know, I'm really committed, and I think the narrative around Cleveland gets a bad mark right now in the technology space. Not a lot's happening. And I think that's uh, it's disappointing to me. But I think that where you have that creates opportunity for people to go, you know, be in the forefront of that and make change and show them how. And I think that's what we're really trying to do with, you know, having our headquarters here because we do have offices in, you know, Seattle, LA, uh, the Carolinas, and Texas. But always, Cleveland's going to be our home. And you know my approach to Cleveland in general is we want to be thought of as the leaders in the city on how you build companies from the ground up. And like, that is my personal mission here, that like, you know, I'm fighting like hell every day to do so and making sure that we're really curated and careful about how we
1: do it. Hmm. Well, I appreciate that perspective and we're grateful to, to have you on our team. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the city is
0: grateful to have you too. You're doing a lot of the cool stuff you know, within its ecosystem as well. So I think it's, you know, it's been fun for us to connect and, and talk about that. I think the missions that we have here, I think there's a lot of people that have that mission and what I'm realizing is that they're just not connected together. Um, yeah. And so I want to
1: change that. I would like to as well. So I look forward to, to working with you on that. <laughs> what has surprised you most about, about the journey so far? <laughs> How hard it is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, knew,
0: um, yeah, I knew it was going to be hard. No, but to be, on, to, be, to be honest, like anybody that gets into early stage company building, like it's a bit sadistic and, you know what you're walking. Yeah, well, if you if you've been through it, you know what you're walking into. I don't think I could do anything else. Like, I think I'm unhirable <laughs> anywhere else. Um, <laughs> but I think the the biggest surprise and just in the in the company's journey is you know how hard the language of steel is. So you think about this. Like, there's 600 I think pounds of steel produced for every American in the United States every year. mean, you think about, I mean, I'm looking around. You know where you are today. How much of that material behind you? on your head with the mic in the computer is actually derived from steel. So it's actually one of the most important materials that make up most of the products that we use on a daily basis. Yet no one spends any time thinking about it. So that's how, that's why I know we're on something special here. But you know, what surprised me is that when, how hard it is to learn the language of steel and everybody says it takes about 10 years and I believe them now. Like I think I read at a a third grade steel level. Um, (laughs) But I think that's, that's part of the fun is like the curiosity I have for the space. Like when I'm walking up and down the streets, it's the things that I start to notice now when I walk into office buildings, you can see like the galvanized ducks for the HVAC and you start to understand where that came from. And it becomes this like incredible story that you get to start painting in your head on where things came from, how they were moved, what the purpose of their, you know, meant to go do. And, you know, the reality is, is like it, it touches almost every minute of our lives as consumers. And uh, it's something I'm just personally just excited about as an individual, and I feel very lucky that I found that thing that I think about. It outcomes a billion dollars for this company. Like if we fail, like I, I think that's how big the market is. Uh, it comes down to execution, of course, but that's why I think this is just so hard. But like I'm so excited about the future.
1: Yeah, no, it it is exciting. It's also a fascinating idea. I think that when you When you build the vocabulary and and gain the literacy, how a lot of things you you may not have noticed become very visible and and obvious when you know how to, to talk about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, have you, have you ever seen, you know, like you look at like air traffic control maps and things like that, where you see all the planes moving and all these nodes going everywhere. Yeah. I and mean, that's essentially what the technology we're building on the back end is like, we have complete visibility of the movement of metals and ultimately downstream for us, like, you know, we'll verticalize every part of that. So we'll own the warehouses, we'll own the trucks, um, we'll own the ma- like the manufacturers, we'll own the fabricated, we'll, we'll start buying service centers just because we have so much incredible data and knowledge of the most efficient path to delivery of material on time. And so that's why, like, you know, I think to your point is, you know, us building and doing the hard work, right? Like we're, we're trying to solve the hard problems yeah. and that's going to take, I think, 10 years for us to do well.
1: Yeah. Well, I know it, it is very exciting though, the, the vision for the future and the, the potential for the, the kind of, of impact that, that you can have in, 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 in retrospect.
0: It's yeah. Very cool. Like I said, never thought I'd be in Cleveland or I thought I'd be in steel, (laughs) but yet I think I found the most important work of my life. So it's pretty exciting.
1: Yeah. Well, we'll bookend uh, the conversation, you know, tying it back to Cleveland. And and this may be a harder question for you than for for most guests as a, as someone newer to to Cleveland, but I will ask you it as it is the, the question we ask everyone on the show, which is, you know, not necessarily for your favorite thing in Cleveland. Although if, if we need to do that, that, that would be okay. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, prob- it's
0: probably, it's probably going to be that. Yeah.
1: But, uh, but, you know, typically what I ask is for something that other people may not know about Cleveland um, oh, hidden man. gems in the city, <laughs> Oregon, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a different
0: state. No. Um, yeah. You know, I don't think I have any insightful <laughs> revelation around that, but I think, you know, thing, things that I've I, I really found that I enjoy is, If I'm downtown, or if I'm doing something, I'll sneak over to Larder and have like a chicken sandwich, or their, you know, whatever they have. I think it's all like their multiple soup, all that's like really good. And also, too, like my business partner, he actually owns Last Page, which is in uh, Pepper Pike in Pinecrest, which which I think may have won the restaurant of the year here. And so, I think that maybe that's a hidden gem for people downtown or on the west side as a place you should go eat on the east side.
1: Awesome. Well, Dallas, really appreciate you coming on and uh, taking the time and, and sharing your story. Again, really, really stoked to, to have you in the city, and uh, appreciate you coming on. Yeah, incredible time. Uh, appreciate you having me, and look forward to many more. If folks have anything that they would want to follow up with you about, what would uh, what would be the best way for them to do so? So, you usually you can find me either on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Dallas Hogans. Well, thanks again, Dallas. Awesome, appreciate it. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe. J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with The Up Company, LLC.